Have you been out birding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm not going to officially brand this story as Birds in the News, partly because I realize now that I inadvertently copied that segment from Mo and Sarah at the Bird uh, Shirt Podcast. Sorry about that, Mo and Sarah. I'll come up with something different there. Give me, give me a little time. But this story I'm going to talk about here is perhaps one of the most sensational bird-related headlines I have ever seen, and that is by a significant margin. I am no, I'm no stranger to sensational bird-related headlines. This is from the Wall Street Journal from the end of last week, published online and in print. The article is headlined, Bald Eagles Are Back and They Want to Eat Your Pets. Just going to let that just... Uh, I'll just sit with you for a while. Evidently, the run of positive bird and birding stories that we saw in the last year is coming to an end. Along with the pandemic, we are ready to reinstate our antagonistic relationship with birds, especially the big scary ones. So I have some issues with this story, not least of which uh, the credulity shown by the journalist here. It, it talks a bit about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service report that found that bald eagle numbers have quadrupled. You may remember we talked about that last month on the This Month in Birding segment. Then it jumps from there to make the claim that this increase has prompted anxiety in pet owners who are now dressing their small dogs in elaborate jackets with spikes, brightly colored streamers that ward off predators. The product is called Coyote Vest because it is developed with coyotes in mind rather than bald eagles. But the one and only source for this seemingly absurd, on-its-face claim that dog owners are addressing their pets like some sort of candy porcupine to prevent eagle attacks, it is a man named Mark Robokov. And Mark owns an Anchorage pet store. So it seems to me like Mr. Robokov mistakenly put a zero or two at the end of his coyote vest order, and he would like to move that extra merchandise, because I can tell you one... Not only is a bald eagle not particularly inclined to take a domestic dog out of a backyard, but two, it's not clear how this dumb vest would stop a motivated bald eagle. Talons are not jaws. I mean, this article is a mess. It then goes on to talk about Cindy Mickles and her California condor deck party, which birds are even less of a threat to pets and obviously not bald eagles besides. But Nate, you might be saying, I have heard these stories about raptors taking pets. A lady on Facebook said so. And I, too, have had to witness these scurrilous attacks on the characters of our birds of prey. Every post in my neighborhood next door about a local red-shouldered hawk features as warnings. They're coming for your pets, which have your small dogs. These myths, they will not die. I do want to give the other side a little bit of, I don't know, let, let's take it on face value. In an attempt to find one verified incident of a bald eagle taking a dog... I did a very scientific search. I googled bald eagle eating dog, and I found some weird stories. Uh, in one of them, it sounded like a cousin accidentally left a gate open and then blamed it on the eagle. Brood. 
Uh, in one, the dog remarkably has no injuries from this bald eagle attack. Uh, in almost all of them, the bald eagle is tooling around suburbia. Uh, in another, no one actually sees the eagle in question, but some vet tells them that it's an eagle. It, it's a mess. There's a lot of unreliable narrators here. I'm skeptical of all of these stories. None of them appear credible. All of them expose local media as both nature illiterate and unbelievably credulous. Stop with the bald eagle slander Wall Street Journal. They might be a thieving, landfill-dwelling, dirt-common bird of prey, but they're not pet killers. Unless your pet is a salmon. They're not coming after your dogs and cats. Now, great horned owls, they might have it coming. You've been warned. On the show today, we have another pileated woodpecker story, this time from Christy Esmahan from Austin, Texas. It's a little bittersweet, it's fair warning. But first, friend of the podcast, Taiki James of Onward for Wildlife is back. We're going to talk about some interesting bird-related policies in the U.S. right now and a little about his new Freedom Birders initiative. All that after this week's reference. your rare bird focus for the middle of May 2021. After a year away, there are birders back on the western Alaskan islands, so we will have reports from Gamble at least this spring. No word on St. Paul Island, though they just had their very first COVID case, like of the whole pandemic at the end of April, so I think it's safe to say they're doing well, though that also means what they have been doing is working, and that's keeping people off the island. But local birders did turn up a stellar sea eagle on the island last week, so things are getting exciting. In any case, there are birders on the Aleutians currently, and from Shemaya Island in the central Aleutians, we have reports of falcated duck, lesser sand plover, tundra bean goose, and an old world Modesta subspecies great egret. If you can't go to western Alaska, you're in luck. One of the more common vagrants there, the gargany, a small teal-like duck, is being seen in a number of places elsewhere on the continent, with May records from New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, and Oregon, all of the distinctive male, though females could be out there too for a birder who wants to pick them out. And a couple first records to note. From North Carolina, a yellow-green vireo was discovered in Dare County. This follows record in the last few years from South Carolina and New Jersey. This bird is probably showing up in the east with more regularity than records suggest. And in Nebraska, a broad-billed hummingbird was seen in Lancaster County, a state first there. Interestingly, only a week or so after that species was seen near Chicago for Illinois' second record. Two different birds. One was a male, one was a female. That's all I got this week, but you can get up to speed on all the rarity news in the ABA area by checking out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also join our rarity sharing Facebook group, that's ABA Rare Bird Alert, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. We're over 100 days into a new administration and five months into a new Congress in the U.S., and our elected officials have been busy with some interesting environmental policies legislation in that time, many of which impact our birds more than I can remember in some time. And uh, to chat about it, I'm happy to bring back to the podcast, Tyke James. He's a host of Onward for Wildlife from the Wildlife Observer Network. How are you, Tyke? I'm doing good. Nice to talk to you again, Nate. Very happy to be here. What a what a year it's been. What a three months. <laughs> I mean, when you said that, I was like, wait, that that's, I know, oh, right? it's May. It's, yeah. yeah, that's five months. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Understandably, you've probably been worrying about birds. More than everything else, I know a lot of us has. It's hard to focus on other things outside of oh, yeah. birds uh, during this time. How's your spring? How's your spring been? Uh, pretty good. So, especially in comparison to last spring, last spring <laughs> I had a broken ankle and I was nursing that, and I wasn't doing a whole lot of moving around. Um, but I, you know, it, it did let me practice 
some of the um, non out in the field skills of birding, mm-hmm. looking in mm-hmm. the field guide, listening to other people's stories about how they identify and relate to birds because, you know, you can find helpful mnemonics and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but this year, oh boy, my first warbler of the year was the People's Warbler, aka <laughs> the Warbler of Racial Unity, aka the Zebra Wings, aka America's Tree Keeper or Tree Creeper. That's a hard yeah. word to say. Uh, <laughs> you may know it as the Black and White Warbler. I yeah. call it the People's Warbler. It comes with many names. Yeah, it comes <laughs> with many names, and you know, I think it's it's a really great bird. First Warbler of the year that I've seen, and then you know. Only more warblers have been yeah, seen since. They and come, they come really pretty excited. heavy after that. Right. <laughs> Let's lead off with uh, you know, a piece of legislation that we talked about the very first time you were on, mm-hmm. the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. About a year ago, we were kind of talking about some changes that the executive branch was trying to make to the way that the policy was enforced. Now, new administration, new executive branch. I think we can maybe say that we're kind of out of the woods. Would that be accurate, at least for now? Well, um, it's good that the birds are in the woods, <laughs> but I think the the future of, you know, sustaining bird populations, the future of supporting biodiversity uh, means taking not just the executive steps to um, which we've seen the uh, Biden administration take to formally withdraw the Trump administration's rule removing incidental take protections. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also takes what the legislature is doing, what Congress is doing. Last year, uh, I mentioned the Migratory Bird Protection Act that was introduced and and, um, it passed out of the House Natural Resources Committee, had a good amount of co-sponsors, both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be nice if that came back. (laughs) to say that nicely it'd it'd be really cool if in the 117th congress somebody cough cough wink wink reintroduced it you know yeah it would be great um is it just me or does it feel like there are sort of more explicit bird references in these more recent sort of policies and legislation like i've been really heartened to hear interior secretary deb holland who we predicted by the way mm-hmm. yes uh, yeah yeah if you heard it first that <laughs> is right. right maybe maybe this podcast i'll do another if i'm if i'm not too big for my britches you know <laughs> i might do another prediction for everybody yeah look into our crystal ball um <laughs> I, she like specifically was referencing the three billion birds lost study that was you know in the news mm-hmm. last year um you know i've been aware of environmental policy for a while i don't recall them talking about birds as much as they are now yeah, you know, and that's to some degree what the majesty, what the uh, you know captivation capital that birds have when you think about wildlife conservation focuses. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, wildlife conservation is about biodiversity conservation, is mm-hmm. about environmental protection. You know, it's just you can look at it as a series of umbrellas or buckets. It's all related in some way. Um, but birds, I think, are really special because, I mean, they're special in a lot of ways and people could speak for themselves <laughs> yeah. in, in, in why that is. But birds tell us a lot. You know, birds can connect us across the hemisphere, across the world, across habitats, across history. And, you know, when you think about protecting birds, you're thinking about protecting all of those things. Yeah. Back when I was a blogger, like in the back, in the, in the pre-Facebook internet if you can, if you can remember back that podcast days <laughs> that's right um i used I, I had a blog called the drinking bird and i had like this reg, regular segment called uh, the single issue voter 
where I basically just like looked at all the, you know, presidential candidates. This is, this was back in 2008 mm-hmm. um, and looked at their environmental policy and like tried to tease out what specifically they would do for birds. And I got to tell you, like across the board, they were bad. <laughs> like Oof. no one would talk about birds. And environmental policy just in general used to be just climate change and nothing else. And I've been like really, really heartened to see lots of talk about money for protection of resources for the, for the national wildlife system. Mm-hmm. You're thinking of recovering, recovering America's Wildlife Act. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like money specifically that's, that's, that's being put towards these habitat um, initiatives that very, very directly affect not only birds, but, you know, I, we always think of things, look at things through the lens of birds. Wildlife that is sort of bird specific and they're using birds as sort of these totems for, for, for talking about these policies. And like that, that is, feels completely new to me. And I don't know if that's your doing or <laughs> what, but like, it, it does feel like it's, it's very positive in a way. I, I'm more optimistic than I have been uh, mm-hmm. in a while for that. And, you know, and I share that, you know, I think that not just because of the uh, majority party composition in Congress mm-hmm. and the White House right now, I think it's also because we a lot of folks are paying attention to yeah. their yeah. local nature. A lot of folks are paying attention to the green spaces that they have relied on as uh, refuge or, or, or just simple outside time. That, you know, when things are in lockdown, when, when things are requiring quarantine, um, you think about how important these places are, how important they are to protect today, but mm-hmm. also tomorrow and, and into the future. So what that may look like is more money for conservation and more money for conservation shouldn't be a crazy idea because more money for conservation, whether it's for birds or land, that's also, you know, birds land on things. Um, <laughs> money for conservation is money for jobs. Yeah. You know, if 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 we don't take conservation seriously, that means we're not taking environmental jobs seriously. And I I shouldn't just say environmental jobs. We need folks that work in finance <laughs> to work yeah. in conservation. We need folks who are lawyers to work in conservation. You know, it's not just um the folks who are the wildlife biologist, you know, which I think uh, is an incredible uh, source of, you know, conservation specialists, but when we're talking about funding for conservation, we got to think about how these are jobs and these jobs lead to careers that in, that make the world better. For sure. Is there any piece of uh, legislation or policy that's coming out now that you are sort of excited about? Maybe something that's kind of running underneath the, uh, well, I mean, all environmental policy feels like it kind of runs underneath the, <laughs> mm-hmm. underneath, the, uh, underneath the radar. But is there anything that you think is super important for birders to be aware of? Um, one that, that comes to mind is the Saline Lakes Ecosystems in the Great Basin States Program Act of 2021. It mm-hmm. isn't <laughs> RAWA, which is Recovering America's Wildlife Act, something a little more concise, something a little more alliterative. <laughs> no, yeah. the Saline Lakes Ecosystems in the Great Basin States Program Act of 2021 uh. Will trying to make that into an acronym and it luck. is not working yet. Slee, slee, no, no yeah, good luck. I, it, <laughs> it, um, it, it was introduced by Senator Merkley from Oregon and Senator uh, Mitt Romney from Utah. This was actually reintroduced bipartisan legislation that will establish a program within the U.S. Geological Survey to assess, monitor, and 
um, benefit the hydrology of saline lakes and the migratory birds and other wildlife that depend on them. Now, that may seem very specific to issues in the West, you know, mm-hmm. specifically the saline lakes and their wetlands. Um, but this is, I think, a step in showing part of the way we solve problems is taking time and taking investments to understand them. You know, like we are not starting with all of the answers and and we know that more problems will occur. And I think that legislation like this is also a practice in bipartisanship, is a, is a practice in deliberation and is a practice in showing the connectivity of habitat and how that connectivity of habitat is also a connectivity of environmental health and, and, and thus public health. Uh, yeah, you know, the saline lakes in particular, I mean, I know birders in the uh, western part of the continent would know this uh, more than perhaps most, but, you know, 99% of North America's eared grebes, um, like a ridiculously high percentage of, of Wilson's phalaropes and American avocets. I mean, these birds that we think of as continental birds, as, mm-hmm. as like coast to coast, you know, they depend on these places. And, you know, the those those lakes are at risk of drying up. They're at risk of you know, a lot of different demands on, on the water and other things. And it's, it's nice to see that sort of bipartisan, you know, both sides where actually recognizing that this is an issue and, and solving this. It's, you know, a long time ago, people used to think of these conservation issues as sort of opportunities for bipartisanship mm-hmm. that has been less so in the last decade or so. But um, it's good to see that it is still there. Absolutely. In some sense. <laughs> and, and you know, part of what I like in this as well is that it describes the legislation itself describes how uh, the U.S. Geological Survey will work closely with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, other federal, s- tribal, state and local governments, mm-hmm. research institutions, nonprofit organizations and partners to develop, design and implement this program. You know, and I think that having those type of considerations baked into the start of the thing is mm-hmm. much better than trying to do the thing and then realizing afterwards, mm-hmm. I should have included these folks. Right. <laughs> or I should have did a little more data collection. And, you know, I don't know where the spectrum is on perfectly written legislation to imperfectly written legislation, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. philosophically speaking, all legislation is imperfect. Um, I just like the principles behind investing in learning and investing in taking actions that show that we know better. Yeah. It shows that they can still be done. Like mm-hmm. with all the, all the political posturing that goes on, like there are still opportunities to, to actually accomplish this stuff. And I, I hope that, you know, if there are birders out there who are contacting their, their senators to make sure that this gets, uh, make sure that this gets passed, that would be, yeah, that would be certainly be beneficial. I mean, it's also interesting, the earmark process, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like members of the House, they're definitely doing earmarks now. You know, I don't know if it's a majority, but I know the good amount of Republicans want earmarks too. earmarks Mm -hmm. maybe isn't the term that they're using. I think they're using uh, community funding, you know, like in district money that through the uh, appropriations process that can go directly to their districts for shovel ready projects. Mm -hmm. And you know, where those benefit birds, I'm sure birders will have a voice in that because where we see benefits for birds, we see benefits for people. Yeah. I'll be honest. Like I this is maybe not necessarily related to environmental legislation, but the whole, you know, demonization of the earmark process has been something that's happened over the last, I don't know, 20 years. It's like, those have always been the ways that like your representative, your local congressman, like gets Mm. this stuff to you. 
and shows that they can accomplish goals. Like it's always been sort of a win-win thing. That money that goes to like your local park for a wetland restoration or for a local nature center to, uh, you know, fix some bridges and make some trails like that is that is, you know, showing you that that government works for birds and can accomplish things for birds and for birders. Exactly. You know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has money. They're, they're full. They're not they may not be full of it, but mm-hmm. a lot of investment going into bird conservation happening through uh, NACA, which is the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. I know mm-hmm. that that's something a lot of different environmental groups care about because wetlands are so important just because of gravity Water flows from high places to low places, and often that can cover a lot of ground considering how tributaries can meander. Mm -hmm. And it's also not just birds, but other indicator species that that help us understand how the ecology of a place is uh, presenting the health of that place as well. Or should I say biodiversity of the place helps us understand the ecology. Yeah, they like that NACA stuff is really fascinating because it's like it, it's a million dollars here, a million dollars there, mm-hmm. five hundred thousand dollars here. It's a lot of money that can go to a lot of good things, but from a you know, a federal budget perspective, it's a drop in the bucket. And it goes to show that it does not take a lot to make meaningful, you know, efforts to help birds. Yeah. And to get jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that is money that is going towards bird conservation. Those that's money going towards jobs as well. Yeah. So that that's that's all well and good. I know that you've got a lot of kind of irons in the fire and a lot of plates spinning and all the other metaphors for being very busy. <laughs> a lot of trains um, on the track. Try to train, whatever you got. Whatever you got. Yeah, it's infrastructure, you know. So trains on the track is good. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but uh I want to talk about a, a project that you've kind of spearheaded uh called the Freedom Birders. It's an initiative, uh, you know, an inclusivity and diversity initiative with birding. Can you talk about, you know, what you're doing with that? Absolutely. Um, Every Tuesday at 530, every other Tuesday at 530 Eastern time, I meet with uh, a friend of mine. Now we're expanding it to more people Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about how the culture of birding can and should change in the United States and how how developing specifically a racial justice curriculum with bird education resourced by the lessons and inspirations of the civil rights movement, the freedom rides uh, in particular, the black lives matter movement, the 1619 project, and even black birders week, 2020, seeing those lessons, sharing that inspiration and developing a racial justice curriculum with that, our hope, our aspiration, our vision that Freedom Birders is a movement to change the birding community in that way. And we have a website that I really would love to repeat a million and two times. I will say it a few (laughs) times here, freedombirders.org. Please check us out. We have some blogs up, please. Um, And it is, we also have a nice little video that tells you what Freedom Birders do. What do Freedom Birders do? They bird. And bird is this really clever acronym that we came up with. Uh, B means beginner-minded. I means inclusive. R means recognizers, meaning we recognize the land that we're on, enjoying you know these birds on. And D is deliberate, because you don't <laughs> you don't achieve diversity on accident, right? Mm-hmm. You don't practice inclusivity as an excuse to not be a decent human being. <laughs> no, you got to be deliberate about these things. And mm-hmm. um, it's also a cute little acronym. Hopefully, makes it easy to remember. Uh, but we hope that 
Freedom Birders can be a space for folks to come to to see how we promote culturally responsive lessons that encourage youth and adults to be beginner-minded, to practice inclusion, to recognize the history of land they share with birds, and to act deliberately on their values. Can you give an example of what these sort of... uh these lessons might entail. I don't want to spoil it if people want to give it. I mean, you know, you know, you can keep on, you can go to the freedombirders.org and you can check it out yourself, but just, you know, a taste of what you're doing. Absolutely. If you go to freedombirders.org right now, <laughs> right. Didn't I say it? Yeah. Um, push if, it. yeah. if you go to freedombirders.org right now, you can see under the birdhouse tab, we have a click, a thing that you can click on. I call it a click because it's just a thing you can click on. We have a click for land recognition. And I would encourage folks going there to see how a compilation of curated resources can make the smallest difference in building consciousness so that the way you bird is a little more rewarding, is a little more revealing, is a little more than just looking at birds, putting them on a bird and calling it a day. Um, so one of the things we talk about, and this is again, on freedombirders.org. Seneca Village used to be a black neighborhood in Central Park in New York, and it is not any longer. And, you know, there are reasons for that that go before the definition of gentrification. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when when black folks have something nice and, and that something nice all of a sudden disappears from the history maps, I think that the conclusions can be drawn pretty clearly. Um, but I want to also mention that, you know, Central Park is the... Same park, infamous park, famous park, where the Cooper incident occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, that that sparked part of the inspiration for Black Birders Week. That, you know, we think about now Central Park, this birding destination, this this space um, that, you know, I'm not so familiar with. It's not a neighborhood park for me personally. And my perspectives of it are definitely moved and, and shifted by what I see on the internet and what I see in the media. And so we hope that, you know, seeing what the Freedom Birders Project has, seeing the curated resources, it can also shift and, and, and open your mind to the perspective that, you know, what we think about as land today, what we name things today, well, that's not how we started. Mm -hmm. And I hope that going through these resources, you can ask yourself and you can see how we were asking ourselves the question, how did we get here? Because if we don't understand how we got here, well, it's a lot harder to figure out what to do next. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at the history of Seneca Village, you'll know, you may know that that's not just the history of Seneca Village. It's, it's the history of the Black experience. It's been the history of indigenous peoples in this country. It's been the history of marginalized communities who have been misplaced, misnamed, and, you know, forgotten or moved on by history. But I would like to think that we're not forgetting those things, that mm -hmm. uh, we can uplift those things in a way that brings our collective consciousness to be better problem solvers. You know, this is not just about being excited to be a woke birder. You know, <laughs> this is also, Freedom Birders also is not a project for white people to feel that they're an inclusive birder. No. We seek to change birding as a culture, birding as a movement. We seek to change that um, by, you know, taking these small steps of encouraging a little bit more consciousness by sharing a little bit of resources and, and uplifting these stories that 
you know, if no one tells you about this, you'll just accept Central Park for what it is. Mm-hmm. You'll just accept Manhattan for what it is. This is what it always was. No, it's important to think about how do we get here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you say that, you know, birding should change, I know that some people might, you know, immediately get defensive on that and say, oh, you know, birding doesn't need to change. Birding is, is separate from all this stuff. Birding shouldn't have, shouldn't be, quote unquote, politicized. You know, for me, I, I always, you know, enjoy knowing more about this history and like incorporating that into what I'm doing. And just like, I don't know, like, I like knowing, I like, I just like knowing and then being able to draw conclusions from that. That's just where I come from. (laughs) Birding builds coalitions. Birding is a, is a movement builder. And if you don't believe me, look at Black Birders Week. If you don't believe me, look at ABA. If you don't believe me, look at the National Audubon Society. If you don't believe me, look at your local chapter. Birding brings people together. And when people come together, they can build power. Yeah. And if you can, you know, wield that power and turn it towards birds and bird conservation and a birding community that is engaged in all of these things, I think we all benefit. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, to the point that we were talking about earlier, when we are, you know, getting more funding for conservation, we're talking about jobs, mm-hmm. money that goes towards birds is money that goes towards, yes, more bird lovers, but people who also love having a job. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that in turn turns towards people with discretionary income that they can spend on bird conservation um, <laughs> here in the United States and beyond. You know, I, I like it's all there's there's a connection there. I, I enjoy the fact that we are being more explicit about drawing, making those connections um, now than perhaps we have in, in the past. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of what we appreciate and birding uh, came from the hard work of black and brown people forgotten by history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm no historian, nor am I even a perfect storyteller, but I seek, you know, that information so that I can share it. And so that like this culture of birding will constantly ask itself, how did we get here? Because there's no reason that we should accept what we are given just accepting what you are given doesn't necessarily make you a good birder. Questioning, not everything, but being skeptical, even healthy, you know, there's a healthy amount of skepticism we can all have, but this isn't even skepticism. This is just introspection. This is how did we get here as uh, as a means of understanding what we do next. Tucky James, he's the host of Onward for Wildlife. Check it out as part of the Wildlife Observer Network. You can find that wherever there are podcasts. Thank you so much, Taiki. This is always a pleasure, Nate. This is Christy Asmahan calling from Austin, Texas. My pileated woodpecker story is from 22 years ago. It's a sad story, but the consequences of what happened that day were ultimately good, which is why I decided to share the story with you. When I first moved to Texas in 1999, I was living in a northern suburb of Houston, teaching science at a private school. The school was located on a beautiful wooded lot, and there were big trees fairly close to the buildings. One day, I was in my classroom on the second floor, and I was teaching a middle school science class when I happened to look out the window, and there was a gorgeous pileated woodpecker on the trunk of a tree, not one meter from the window. It was so breathtaking with that big pointy red head and those crisp 
black and white feathers on its body that I stopped in mid-sentence and said, hey, everybody, look at that beautiful woodpecker. And I went on to tell them that it was a pileated woodpecker, and I answered a few questions between their excited gasps and exclamations. And then one of my 13-year-old students, an excitable young man, started waving his arm in the air for me to call on him. And when I did, he said, Dr. E, his voice was breathless with excitement. Dr. E, I shot one just like that on Saturday with my dad. I was so stunned and heartbroken that I had a hard time focusing on the rest of the lesson. And fortunately, there were just a few minutes left before the bell rang. After class, I told one of my colleagues about the experience to get her take on it. Yeah, she said in her Texas twang. I know that woodpeckers are protected, but hunting is big in Texas. And then she went on to say that there were a lot of private ranchers and big ranches where people that are, you know, perhaps less scrupulous can harm animals and maybe never be found out, especially if their sons don't blab about their antics to their science teachers. Shoot, shovel, and shut up, she called it. Over the years, the feeling of grief for the loss of that pileated woodpecker and the fact that someone could get pleasure from destroying such a beautiful creature stayed with me. And when my life became less busy because my own kids grew up, I got involved in my local Audubon chapter and then went on to lead the advocacy group that is focused on protecting birds from the myriad of human-caused perils that they face. Nowadays, I'm an ardent advocate for the birds and I think that my sad experiences that day with the pileated woodpecker is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about saving the birds. Thank you so much, Christy. If you would like to share a story about our 2021 ABA Bird of the Year, the pileated woodpecker, please record it using your voice memo app on your smartphone and send it to me at podcast.aba.org with pileated woodpecker in the subject line. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. Members get more like our great magazines, discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books and the Corner Lab of Ornithology and opportunities to travel with us now that we're getting back to normal there. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make some special shout outs to Carson Weisbord of Washington, D.C., Joseph Weisbord of Brooklyn, New York, Stephen Klingler of Austinburg, Ohio, and Gwen Moulton of Durwood, Maryland, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you all so very much. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who's a big fan of Congress mandating that every unvalidated eBird record is available for public consumption with a bill called the Searchable Ornithological Research Act, or SORA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wants to see Congress do something about all these unleashed dogs at his local patch with the animals newly harnessed inside National Grounds Act, or Anhinga. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who want to increase awareness of migratory birds with the Migrants Yeeting at Night Act, or MINA, if you like to shorten that. You can find us online at aba.org and on the various social medias as either American Birding Association or ABA. I worry sometimes that we're not appreciating our native corvids to the extent that they deserve. So I'm excited for my congressional representative to introduce the Crows Have Acumen, Crows Have Audacity, Love All Crows Act 2021 better known as Chachalaka. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Get vaccinated. See you next week.